Well, this is in your bulletin this morning, but just to remind you, the deadline for REACH team applications is this coming Wednesday. Uh, you'll need to turn in a $200 deposit at that time. You'll need to fill, fill out the application, you'll need a copy of your driver's license and your current health insurance card. And uh, don't forget that because of the generosity of this church family, uh, all of the costs for these REACH trips have been underwritten at 50%. So you're only going to have to pay half of what it would normally cost for you to be part of one of these teams. And I hope you are prayerfully considering where God would have you serve to make a difference uh, here in our own community, our nation, and among the nations. So you pray about that and make sure you get that application in no later than this coming Wednesday. Many of you are aware, know that in my spare time, uh, I am a reserve police officer. You meet a lot of interesting people in that line of work. Sometimes you meet them on the street. Uh, sometimes you meet them in the back of uh, my patrol car. <laughs> uh, sometimes you just meet them in the course of uh, every day going and coming. And a couple of weeks before Christmas... I was in the place where I normally get my hair cut, and I've, I've tried to build a relationship with uh, uh, the ladies in there because, you know, when you're sitting there getting your hair cut, there's, it's a little hard for folks to get away from you if they're going to be cutting your hair. And uh, when, when it's discovered that uh, I do what I do in law enforcement, but I don't do it full-time, that I'm part-time, then that opens the door for me to share what I do full-time at North Greenville University and my role here as interim pastor. And really presents some neat opportunities to share the gospel and share the good news of Jesus Christ with folks. And again, a couple of weeks before Christmas, I was in a particular conversation uh, with one of these uh, young ladies. And, you know, my heart just broke for her. She was going through such difficult times, been in and out of a couple of marriages, and um, but was trying to get her life straightened out. And she said to me, she said, you know, I'm I'm trying to go to church. When I go to church, I feel good being there. And I'm trying to be a better person, trying to you know, trying to raise my kid to, to be a good person. And, and we talked all around religion. And we talked all around church. Until I finally came to the point where I had to raise the question with her. How is it with your personal relationship with God? She didn't have an answer. I'm not going to tell you the girl's name, but would you pray for her? This is one of the people God has laid on my heart to continue to try to share the gospel with as I have opportunity to, to do so. And there probably be people like that in your life as well. And there was a person like that that came into Jesus' life in the great third chapter of the Gospel of John. And I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word, if you have it with you, and turn to John chapter 3, what is surely one of the most strategic, one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. For this is the location where our Lord Jesus Christ raises the question we're looking at this morning. Have you really been born again? And does it really matter? Does it? Does it really matter that you're in church, 
but haven't been born again? Does it really matter that you can answer all of the theological questions but haven't been born again? Does it really matter that you try to live a good life and try to set a good example but haven't been born again? Critical question. Raised by our Lord Jesus Himself. So I want us to look at this together, and I'd like to just jump into it this morning, because when we talk about the new birth, recognizing that this is something that Jesus Himself brought up, He tells us that it is an absolute necessity that you and I be born again if we're going to be part of of God's family. So let's look together this morning at the necessity of the new birth. And John chapter 3 opens this way. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. So here is Nicodemus, who was a well-known and respected religious leader and teacher of that day. He comes to Jesus at what seems to be a strange time, late at night. Now, I've read some commentators who have suggested that maybe Nicodemus came to Jesus late at night because Jesus was causing a lot of furor uh, that day among the religious community, and he didn't really particularly want to be seen with Jesus. But I'm not sure I believe that. I would rather think that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he was truly searching for something, and he wanted some uninterrupted time with this radical rabbi who was turning the religious establishment upside down. So Nicodemus was searching. And he came to Jesus, and if you'll look at what he said here, you'll notice he was very polite. He was very respectful in his approach to Jesus. I find a lot of people like that today. There may be some people who don't have a lot of good things sometimes to say about the church, but when we talk about Jesus, usually they're very respectful of him. If they know anything about him, they admire what they might have heard about his life as it's revealed to us in the New Testament. So Nicodemus is very polite. He's respectful. He calls Jesus rabbi. That word means teacher. And he recognized there was something very special about Jesus, the things he was doing, the words he was speaking. But I want you to notice in verse 3, that Jesus absolutely interrupts this diplomatic opening by Nicodemus, and he says to him, Nicodemus, stop. I need to tell you something. In fact, I need to tell you a very important truth. Here it is. You can talk about religion all you want to, but no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Can I let you in on a secret this morning? You ready for it? Jesus isn't interested in religion. That's what he was trying to say to Nicodemus, and that's exactly what he would say to you and me this morning as well. 
He's not interested in talking about religion. In fact, if you know anything about the life of ministry of Jesus at all, you will know that some of the harshest words that ever came out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus were reserved for those who were part of the religious elite of the day. He called them hypocrites, a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, all of the negative things you could possibly think that Jesus could say about anybody, he reserved for those people in his day who appeared to be very religious. So Jesus isn't interested in religion. He didn't want to talk to Nicodemus about religion. He wanted to talk to Nicodemus about his walk and his own personal relationship with God. So he brushes away all of this religious fluff that Nicodemus was talking about, and he gets to this point, and he says, Nicodemus, we really can't con continue this conversation any further, or it's really not going to be uh, of any significance if we continue this conversation any further until we get one single solitary thing nailed down. You must be born again. Now, if you look at verse 7 of John chapter 3, it's there in your message guide, Jesus says the same thing, but here he's even more emphatic because in the original language of the New Testament, what Jesus says to Nicodemus literally is, Nicodemus, you yourself, even you, Nicodemus, must be born again. That's why it's important that we recognize who Nicodemus was here. He was a very religious man. Verse 1 says he was a Pharisee. All right, if we bring that into contemporary uh, jargon that we could understand, we might say he was a graduate of the Palestine Bible Institute. Or he had a degree from the Law of Moses training school. Maybe he had a master's degree from Jerusalem Theological Seminary. I mean, the guy had the knowledge. He was incredibly religious. All the credentials, all the background anyone could possibly have about religion. But Jesus said, Nicodemus, you yourself, even you, with all that you know, all of your religious upbringing and training, the fact that you can answer any question about Scripture that I might ask you, Nicodemus, none of that matters because you, even you, must be born again. My friend, I want you to listen to me carefully. It doesn't matter who you are this morning doesn't matter what you do, what you accomplish, how much money you have, how many friends you have, what other people in the church might think about you. doesn't matter how much you know about church. doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible or religion. You cannot bluff your way into the kingdom of God. You cannot bargain your way into the kingdom of God. You cannot buy your way 
into the kingdom of God. You can't even be, listen to me, you can't even be baptized into the kingdom of God. And you can't be brought into the kingdom of God on the coattails of somebody else. I don't care how good a Christian your mama was or your daddy was or your grandparents were. Doesn't matter how dedicated you are to the church. There is only one way. Here's the truth. There is only one way that you can enter and I can enter into God's family. And that is for us to be born into it. That's the only way you get into the kingdom of God. It's the only way you get into the family of God. You must be born into it. I tell you, I, I know a lot of folks, and I've had conversations with a lot of folks who are counting on a lot of things to get them into heaven. Jesus said there's only one thing that will do it. Only one. You must be born again. There is no other way. Okay, preacher, that, you got my attention. That sounds plain enough, but I, what in the world are you talking about? I don't have any idea what it means to be born again. You know what I've discovered? A lot of people don't really understand what it means to be born again. I'm talking about even some church people don't even understand what it means to be born again. So can we spend a few moments trying to make sure we understand that? This morning, it's critically important. What does it mean to be born again? What is the meaning of the new birth as Jesus talks about it here? Well, the key word when Jesus says you must be born again is really the word again. You must be born again. We all understand what it means to be born, right? To go through that physiological process of birth, physical birth, we understand that. But what does it mean to be born again? Well, that word again can be understood at least three different ways. Let's look at them. Number one, to be born again can mean to be born for a second time. For a second time. That is, it can be understood on a purely physical level. Evidently, that's how Nicodemus understood it. Because, you know, the man was just blown away when Jesus said, you must be born again. Look at how he responded there in verse 4. With an incredulous look on his face, I imagine. He said, Jesus, wait a minute. How in the world can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born, can he? And of course, the answer to that is no. But it can be understood on this level. And that's what Nicodemus evidently understood on a purely physical level. But secondly... To be born again can mean to be born anew or to be born in a new way. That is, when Jesus said you must be born again, he was meaning that we experience in this life a beginning that is as new and as revolutionary as physical birth. 
You know, when you're born, something begins. <laughs> something incredible begins this journey of life. Well, when you're born again, Jesus said it can mean being born anew or being born in a new way so that there's this incredible new beginning to your life that's just like physical birth, except we're talking on a spiritual level. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 affirms. What this means, Paul says, is that those who become Christians become what? New persons. They're not the same anymore. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. So this is a new beginning to be born in a new way. But there's a third way that this can be understood. To be born again can also mean to be born from above. And really, that's the way this word is most commonly used in John's gospel. To be born from above. I like the way the message paraphrase renders John 3.3. 3. It, it gets this just right. Jesus said, unless a person is born from above, it is not possible to see what I'm pointing to, God's kingdom. So we've got to be born from above, from heaven. So to be born again means to have something revolutionary take place in your life that comes from above, from heaven, from God. It's not something you can do. In fact, you can't make this happen. I can't make this happen, no matter how hard we might try. This is only something God can do. So what does Jesus mean when he says you must be born again? Well, obviously, he's not talking about physically being born again. Let me tell you what he means. Sort of a combination of number two and number three. Being born again, quite simply, is an experience brought about by God that brings a change and a newness, and a transformation to your life that is truly revolutionary and gives you a brand new beginning. That's what it means. Let me say it again. It's an experience brought about by God that brings a change, a newness, and a transformation in your life that is truly revolutionary. It means to be completely remade from the inside out, so that you've got a new direction now to your life. You've got a new disposition to your personality. You've got a new dynamic in your walk, and all of that comes from God. That's what Jesus is emphasizing here in verses 5 and 6. This is the New Living Translation. It reads, the truth is, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can only produce, reproduce human life, but the Holy Spirit gives new life from where? Where does it come from? It comes from heaven. This new life comes from heaven. Now, Jesus is juxtapositioning here human birth and spiritual birth, birth out of water and birth out of the Spirit. And here's what he means. When you were born and when I was born physically the first time, we were born out of 
water. Okay, we were born out of water. It's what Jesus says here. You, you can't enter the kingdom of God without being born of water. You've got to be born physically, the first thing. Before you and I were born, we were, we, were, we were surrounded by water, right? That amniotic fluid that protected us in the womb, and we speak of breaking the water. And when that happens, the birth process begins. All right, Jesus says, in the same way, when you are born again, there is an outpouring, not of water, but of the Holy Spirit on your life in a way that you've never before experienced it. Listen to me, being born again is not a repeat of any other experience you may have ever had before. It is something radically new. It is not something you can work up through some kind of religious experience. This is something only God can do. That's why Jesus says humans can only reproduce human life. But the Holy Spirit gives new life from heaven. Being born again means your life has been radically changed, transformed, revolutionized by God. In an experience that is as dramatic as the physical birth process itself. So if we understand what it means to be born again, to experience this radical transformation of life that comes from God, how does it happen? How does it happen in your life? How does it happen in my life? Well, let's look at it. Let's look at this method of the new birth together quickly. How, how is a person to be born again? Well, there is one very important word that you've got to come to terms with. It's used over and over again in John chapter 3. In fact, it's used seven times in verses 12 through 18. The key word is the word believe. That's what John 3.16 says, right? You know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever what? Believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You must believe. John 3, 17 and 18. Again, anyone who believes in Jesus is acquitted. But anyone who refuses to believe in Him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to Him. So we've got to believe. Now, here's something I've discovered over a lot of years of ministry. We think we know what the word believe means. But unfortunately, I've talked to enough people to realize and understand that a lot of folks, don't. not only do they not understand what it means to be born again, they don't really understand what it means to believe. We have a very insufficient sometimes understanding of this word believe. So would you listen to me very carefully this morning? And let me walk through what it means to really believe. Here's number one. To believe in the first place involves my mind. It involves my mind, my intellect. In other words, it means I begin by acknowledging and accepting as true some basic facts about myself 
and some basic facts about Jesus Christ. This is where belief begins. With acknowledging, accepting as true some very basic facts about myself and about Jesus. What are the facts about myself? Well, I didn't have room to write all this down, but you can jot it down. I'll, 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 I'll give it to you. You've probably heard this before. It's not revolutionary. What must I understand about me? What must you understand about you? Number one, we've got to understand that we stand today before God as sinners. Do you understand the word sinner? Do you understand the word sin? Sin means breaking God's law at any level, at any time, in any way. And we have all done that. Romans 3.23 affirms that. For all have what? Sinned and have broken God's law. We've fallen short of God's standard. We have failed to live up to the standard of holiness and righteousness. All of us have sinned. We're sinners by nature. We were born as sinners. We're sinners by choice. We deliberately choose to sin many times. We stand before God today as sinners, having broken His law, having done things we shouldn't have done, having not done things we should have done. We stand as sinners before God. That's the first thing every single person must acknowledge about himself or herself. The second thing is that because we are sinners... We stand today under God's judgment. We stand condemned before the court of heaven, declared guilty of breaking God's law. And because we have been declared guilty and stand under God's condemnation, then the punishment for that is death. Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin, the payment for sin, the recompense for sin. The, the result of sin is death, separation from God right now, and eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. There is a real place, my friends, called hell. It is not a figment of somebody's imagination. The Word of God says it is a real place, and every sinner who stands condemned before God, a holy God, a just God, a righteous God, a God who demands that His standard be met, any person who has not done that and who stands condemned before God suffers separation from Him right now in this earthly life, no relationship with Him, and an eternity to be spent in a real place called hell. That's the bad news. But there's good news. The good news is the, the bad news is the, is the news about us. The good news is the news about Jesus. And the Bible says that what we must believe about Jesus is this, that God, again, John 3, 16, loved the world so much that he sent his son. He himself came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ, taking on human form and human flesh. He came to this earth to deal with our sin problem. That's why we celebrated at Christmas. 
The greatest gift ever given, the gift of God himself, come to this earth because he loves us and he did not want us condemned. Instead, he came in the person of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and then died on the cross in your place and mine, paying our sin debt, taking the penalty of our sin upon himself. He became sin for us, the Bible says, so that we might become the very righteousness of God to bring us into a right relationship with God. Jesus himself said, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one can come to the Father except he or she comes through me. And that's why Jesus came, to pay the debt we could not pay, to take the penalty of our sin upon himself when he died on the cross, so that through his death, burial, and his resurrection, you and I might be positionally declared right with God, in a right relationship with him. So I've got to believe those things. Number one, up here, intellectually, in my mind, I must accept as true these basic facts about myself, that I'm a sinner separated from God, and I must accept some basic facts about Jesus, that he is God himself who came to this earth, who took my, my penalty upon himself, died in my place to make it possible for me to be in a right relationship with God. It involves my mind. My acceptance as true those basic facts. But you can't stop there. I know a lot of folks who can recite that six ways to Wednesday, you know? We've been brought up hearing those things. In fact, I bet for most of you here this morning, that's not new news. For some of you, it might be. If this is the first time you've heard this, let me tell you, that's some good news. For those of us who, who, who have heard it a gazillion times, it's still good news, all right? That God would love us enough to do that. That's what we've sung about today. That's what we've celebrated today. But you can't stop there. Because belief involves not only my mind, but it involves my faith. To believe involves my faith. In other words, it means that I've got to take these things that I say I believe, and I've got to bring them into my life, and I've got to really trust that Jesus will do for me what I cannot do for myself. I've got to trust him to forgive my sin. I've got to trust him to change my life. I've got to trust him to empower me to begin living for him. I want you to look at something Jesus said here in John chapter 3, verse 14. Speaking of an event that took place in the Old Testament. But Jesus said to Nicodemus, Just as Moses lifted up the snake or the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Well, Jesus is referring to an event in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Uh, let, me, let me remind you of what happened there in case you've forgotten. In Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites had done what they were so prone to do, what we are so prone to do. They had sinned against God. They had disobeyed God's law. They had questioned God's promises. They had questioned God's providence. They had questioned God's wisdom. And they had done this over and over again. And God said, I'm going to punish you for your sin. And so he sent 
fiery serpents, Scripture says, venomous vipers into the Israelite camp. And they begin to slither their way into tents and among the people and they begin to bite the people and the people who were bitten began to die. And that death was a result of their sin. And they recognized what was happening and they went to Moses and they said, Moses, we need you to pray for us. Would you please ask God to save us? Would you ask him to take these fiery serpents away? And so Moses prayed to God and he said, would you forgive the sin of this people? And God said, I will, but here's here's what I'm going to do. I want you to make a serpent out of bronze. I want you to cast a bronze serpent, I want you to put it on a long pole and I want you to lift it up in the midst of the Israelite camp so that all the people can see it. And any person who has been bitten by this poisonous snake can look at this serpent lifted up in their midst and they will not die, but they will live. And that's what the people did. When they by faith looked up at that serpent, believing that God would heal them, he healed them. So the solution to the serpent problem was not killing the serpents. It wasn't trying to make some kind of anti-venom or some kind of medicine. It wasn't trying to pass anti-serpent laws. It wasn't even trying to climb the pole. The solution was what? Look at the serpent and by faith trust God to do what he said he would do. Now again, let me say to you, every person who has ever lived is living today or whoever will live has broken God's divine law. We've fallen short of his holy standard. We have sinned. And because of that, we all stand today condemned justly and deserving of the punishment of God. But because God is a God of mercy and grace, he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ who, like that serpent in the wilderness, was lifted up on Calvary's cross so that now any person who looks to Jesus Christ in faith, believing, trusting Him, will be saved. Their sins will be forgiven. They will be brought into right relationship with God. I love John 3 um, here. uh, Excuse me. I love Romans 10, 9 through 11 here. Where, where Paul writing says, listen, it's the word of faith that welcomes God to go to work and set things right for us. You're not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. We're simply calling out to God and trusting Him to do it for us. That's salvation, Paul says. With your whole being, you embrace God setting things right, and then you say it right out loud. God has set everything right between Him and me, and Scripture assures us no one who ever trusts God like this, heart and soul, will ever regret it. It's a step of faith. It's a step of trust. But even that's not enough. There's a third thing 
To believe not only in, involves my mind and my faith. I've, I've known a lot of people who know all the facts. I've known a lot of people who say, yeah, I believe, I believe that Jesus will do this for me. But you see, to believe also involves my will. It involves my will. And please don't miss this. Please don't miss this. It is not enough just to believe that He's able to do what He says He will do. You've got you've to make a commitment to Him, my friend. Because you believe He's the Son of God who died for you, because you believe He will do for you what He says He will do, you make Him your Master. You enthrone Him as absolute sovereign over all of your life. You give Him control of your life and you say, Jesus, I am no longer the most important person in my life. You are the most important person in my life and I will follow you. I make a commitment to you to live for you, to let you take my life and do with it whatever you want to do from this day forward. Can I just tell you, this is where a lot of people miss it. They absolutely miss it here. This is where we fall short. Again, a lot of people believe the facts. A lot of people believe Jesus will do this for them. But they've never, ever, ever made a genuine commitment of their lives to Him. I've said this to you before, but this is the greatest danger I see in contemporary American Christianity today. And that is this tendency to take Jesus and just add Him to our lives. We just take Him and we add Him to all this other stuff that we're doing. Jesus does not want to be an addition to your life, my friend. He wants to be your life. He wants to be your life. Paul understood that. He understood it. And that's why in Galatians 2.20 he wrote, and this is probably the verse I quote more than any other, but I love Peterson's paraphrase here in the message. I have been crucified with Christ so that my ego is no longer central. It's no longer about me. It's no longer about what I want. It's no longer about what my friends want. It's no longer about what my sinful nature wants. My ego is no longer central. Why? Because Christ lives in me so that the life you see me living is not my life. I'm not living my life anymore. Christ is living his life out through me. This is a life lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul says, I'm not ever going to go back on that. That's commitment. That's involving your will, my friend. It's a commitment. So giving up your life for Christ's life. It's making... His life, your life. That's what it means to believe. You begin with accepting some facts. You move to taking that step of faith, but you seal it with a commitment, total commitment of your life to serve and to follow Him. So what's the result? What happens when you do that? Well, let's look at it quickly. Again, John 3.16. Would you just say this verse with me? I've got it written there in the NIV so we can 
I'll read it together. Just read it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What is the result of the new birth? Just this. It's eternal life. The result, Jesus says, is eternal life. You want to know what the best thing is about eternal life? The best thing about eternal life is not that it lasts forever, though it does. And it's not that I get to spend eternity with God in heaven, though I do. The best thing about eternal life is that it can begin right now. It can begin right now for you. It can begin right now for me. It's what Jesus meant in John 10.10 where he said, let me tell you why I've come. I've come to give you life. Life to the full. Some translations say abundant life. Life in all of its fullness right now. Purpose, meaning, direction, fulfillment, joy, peace. This is why I've come and it can begin right now. It means He gives you a new heart. It means He gives you a new help. It means He gives you a new hope. It's a life in which you're possessed by a new power, led by a new master, directed by a new motive. Your life changes. I want to say something right here as I get ready to close. Nothing in this message was intended to cause anyone to doubt his or her salvation. Okay? John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I think, These things I have written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The, the normal position for a child of God is to know that you have eternal life. Know that you've been born again. But there needs to be some evidence of that, my friend. Look at some verses here. 1 John 2, 29. If you know that Christ is righteous, you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. How do I know that I've been born again? When I look at the righteousness of Christ, my passion and my heartbeat is to live out that kind of righteous life myself. If I don't care about that, if I don't care what I do, if it doesn't matter what I do, you know, come to church now and do who knows what this afternoon or tomorrow, my friend, you're not born again. You're just not. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now, that doesn't mean you'll never sin. doesn't mean you reach some stage of perfection. But my friend, if the habitual course of your life is to do what you want to do instead of what God wants you to do, if it's to live your life your way instead of what God's Word says about living life His way, you are not born again. You're just not. The Amplified Version of 2 Corinthians 5.17, I'm going to give it to you again, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is, if you've been grafted in and joined to Him by faith as your Savior, 
then what? You are a what? New creature, reborn, renewed by the Holy Spirit. The old things, the previous moral and spiritual conditions have passed away. Behold, new things have come because spiritual awakening brings a new life. Here's the evidence of being born again. The evidence of being born again is a changed life. And if your life is no different today than it was on the day you said you became a Christian, my friend, you are not, can I just tell you from a heart of love, you are not born again. Because the evidence of the new birth is a changed life. It's no longer about you. It's about God. It's no longer about what you want. It's about what He wants. It's no longer about living life your way. It's about living life His way. So if you're comfortable in sin, you're comfortable doing whatever you want to do. You come to church on Sunday and then Christ has really no influence on your life the rest of the week. You are not born again. It's easy to say you are, but you are not. Because the evidence of the new birth, my friend, is a changed, transformed life. Has he done that for you? Will you still struggle? Yes. Will you still fail? Absolutely. I do. We all do. But the trajectory of your life, the passion of your heart, the drive, the energy of your being is directed toward God, toward Jesus Christ and what He wants for you, not what you want for you. So where are you this morning? Have you really been born again? Does it really matter? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Pray with me. Father, we're grateful for this time today and we're thankful for your word. And again, if we know you this morning, our lives have been radically transformed by this new birth, then we of all people should be rejoicing and grateful. And we ought to leave this place today more excited than we've ever been before because we've been reminded of, of what you've done for us through Jesus Christ in the new birth. And that ought to drive us to go out from here and share this good news with those people who don't know Him. Father, if there's someone here today and in their heart of hearts, that person knows. I, I, I've, I've never had that kind of experience. I haven't been born anew. I haven't been born from above. I haven't been radically transformed from the inside out. Come to church, maybe. Try to be a good person. Try to do what my parents tell me to do. Try to do this. Try to do that. Try to be a good citizen. Try to set a good example. All of those are great things. But there's not a one of them that will get us into heaven. It is only the new birth. So Father, I pray right now for any person underneath the sound of my voice who may know that they don't have, never have had this kind of radically reorient, radical reorientation of life, this new birth. I pray, Lord, today would be the day that they would take that step of faith and in just a moment as we sing, they would step out of that aisle where they are and come forward and take my hand and say, Pastor, today I want to experience this, this change of life that is as revolutionary as birth itself, that gives me a new beginning, sets me out on a new destiny. Oh God, may today be that day. And for those of us who 
or confident in our relationship with you, Lord, maybe today we need to really seriously pray about that person we need to share that good news with. We need to pray about how the assurance of our salvation is going to send us out from this place to be more on mission with you than ever before. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. Pray that your Holy Spirit will have the freedom to move now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to join me in standing right now. If you don't know Jesus this morning, would you just come down here? You, listen, this is the, you're going to find nothing but a bunch of folks who want to, want to put their arms around you and love you and rejoice with you. He died for you. Would you just be willing to give your life to him today? Not be afraid, not let Satan keep you gripped to that pew this morning, but you just come on down and receive all that he has for you this morning. If you already have that, maybe you just need to come again and just pray, God, how do you, how do you want to use this good news that I have? And how can I make a difference for you out there this week? Okay? So we've heard the response is up to us. As we sing, you come, would you? Right now, these altars are open. You come on as we sing.